ways that um, we start to count down the, uh, the holiday season and count down the time um, to Christmas um, because people will start posting things like however many shopping days to Christmas, you have this much time to get ready, whatever it is. Well, I've got a new one today. We, uh, we have two sermon series until Christmas. And we are starting one of those two this morning. We are uh, we're going to begin a sermon series today called All In. It's going to be a four-week series. We're going to have um, a, a one-week break, and then we will actually then begin our Advent sermon series as we start to approach Christmas. That's just to let you know how quickly it is coming and how quickly the time is, is passing as we are uh, really getting in. And in fact, I saw on the news this week that because it's apparently a shorter um, shopping season this year, and I haven't been in any stores to verify this, but maybe you have, the Christmas stuff's already out. So, okay, which, you know, I think generally now starts around August anyway. So um, we're going to start a series today called All In, and it's, it's based on, on something that I read and saw from, from another pastor, kind of birthed an idea for me um, for this series, and I titled it based on a, a phrase that, that I remember hearing a lot um, growing up. Maybe it's a phrase that you've heard, a, a question um, that, that would be posed specifically in sports. I would hear it often from coaches playing baseball or football. And, and the, the question was, are you all in? Are you all in? Are you completely focused on this? It spoke to both opportunity and expectation. That's what it was about. It was, it was an opportunity to be a part of something, whether it was a team or another kind of endeavor, but also it spoke to an expectation of, of what it was going um, to take to be successful or to be, to be, to be good. And, and for us, we're not talking about success. We're not talking about good, but we are going to talk about faithfulness. We're going to talk about this invitation that, that God gives, this opportunity and expectation. We're going to talk about our identity in these four weeks. What is our core identity in Christ? And, and what does that mean for us? And so each week, just to give you a preview, we're going to, we're going to look at aspects of, of, of our identity, the truth that God speaks. We're going to talk today about what it means to be invited. We're going to talk next week about what it looks like to be invaluable, in the third week, we're going to talk about the fact that we are influential. We're invaluable because of our giftedness. We're influential by God's call to us in Christ. All of us have influence. And then the last week, we're going to, we're going to look at what it means to be invested. So all these I and words, invited, uh, invaluable, uh, influential, and invested. That's where we're going to go for these, for these next few weeks together. And so I'm looking forward to this, and we're going to, as we always do, dig into Scripture and see what God's Word reveals to us about these basic core identities. And we start today with, with what I believe to be a foundational, the foundational message of the gospel. A gospel that means good news, the, the good news for us, the, the good news of what God speaks to each of us. We're going to talk about what it means to be invited, what it, what it means for us to be invited. Because I believe that a, a universal experience that we all have, have shared at one time or another, in various degrees, at various frequencies, in various circumstances and situations, but, but I'd be hard-pressed to think that there's not a person here that has never experienced the pain, the hurt, the, the, the heartbreak of being unwelcomed, of being in a situation where you were left out, 
where you were not invited, you were not made to feel that your presence was, was wanted, desired, or space was created for you. And so when we begin to, to tap into those experiences, we can begin to start to get in touch with the significance of, of, of this truth that we're going to spend a few minutes unpacking this morning. What, is it, what does it mean to be invited? Say, I wish those moments of, of feeling unwelcomed were, were not ever an experience of the church, but, but we know that things that we experience in every other aspect of our lives, sometimes we experience here as well. And, and in sometimes some of the most painful of those experiences happens right here in, in the community of faith. In one of the early churches I served, um, there was a, a woman in the church, um, just... Her name's, well, I'll just call her Peggy. And um, over the years of I was in ministry there, I, I learned to, to love Peggy. Peggy had a lot of wonderful qualities. She had a passion for the, her church. She had a passion for the tradition of the church that she grew up in. She'd grown up up north, and she was United Brethren. And I knew that because if I ever called us Methodist without using the word united, she would jump all over me. Because United Brethren and Methodists came together, and that became United Methodist. So I was, dis, I was, I was uh, disrespecting her tradition if I didn't say United. And it kind of gives you a sense of, of kind of Peggy a little bit. And like I said, there was a lot of good qualities. But, but Peggy's, one of the qualities she didn't possess, she was not a people person. Um, she was not a warm, outgoing, welcoming presence. She kind of she was gruff. She could be very abrasive. Um, she sometimes looked like she'd been sucking on lemons all the time, you know, that kind of thing. And so that was, that was Peggy, but she was faithful and she was there every week. Now, why does her not being a people person matter? Well, I inherited Peggy as our 815 greeter at the door. And when I say inherited, what I mean was she was there when I came. And um, I didn't have either the um, wisdom or the courage <laughs> To, to change that reality. And so I just kind of like, all right, Lord, you know, do something with this. Make this work. Most of the people knew Peggy. And it was okay most of the time. One Sunday morning, I'm up front. This is before the early, our early service was at 8 o'clock. So it's before the 8 o'clock service. It's a much smaller church. And I say that because in, in smaller congregations, as you know, it's easier to, to spot immediately new faces. And so church, we hadn't started yet. I was up front getting some things ready. But I happened to look at the back. And I'm looking at the double doors just like we have. And there's, you know, Peggy. I can see her off to the side. And I see this young couple starting to walk in. And it really got my attention because 8 o'clock service wasn't the one that we generally saw any of the young people coming to. Uh, and I didn't know them. I knew that, that they hadn't been there before. And so they're starting to walk in. And next thing I know, I see kind of Peggy beeline for them. And she kind of gets in front of them, and so she has a conversation. Now, it didn't immediately startle me. She was the greeter. I wasn't really all that concerned about it. I got distracted doing whatever I was doing. Worship starts, and as we're worshiping, I'm just kind of scanning, and I don't see them. And I'm like, what happened? So uh, after worship, I uh, found Peggy. I said, Peggy, what happened to that young couple that was coming in? And she's like, oh, I told them they couldn't go in. <laughs> Why? 
because they had coffee in their hands. Now, here's the thing. Different churches have different expectations. I know some of you are drinking coffee right now. You're like, uh-oh, <laughs> front row, I'm on there, one there. Different tea, yeah. Different churches have different expectations. And I know some churches don't want food and beverage in their worship centers. And that's fine. I'm not criticizing that. But that wasn't our rule. It wasn't. We had no signs that said no food or beverage, no coffee, nothing. We, we didn't have that tradition. I never led to believe that was Peggy's tradition. And the sad part was you had to, when you walked in the doors, I wish I was making this up, you walked by the coffee. We had coffee, like if you go through the doors, if you're thinking of, you walked through the doors and took three steps to your left, you had coffee. You just, well, that's what Peggy believed. You had to finish it out there. Now, here's the problem. We never saw him again. We never saw him, ever. And, and I said to Peggy afterward, and I tried to be as graceful as I could, but I was angry. And I said, Peggy, they are never coming back. And she said, but they had coffee. And I said, so what? But the point is, I know exactly what happened, and so do you, because you've experienced it. They hit that door, and they were immediately made to feel unwelcome. They were immediately aware they didn't know the rules. Now, none of us knew those rules either, but that didn't matter. They didn't know Peggy was gruff, and that was just kind of her personality. They left feeling, this church doesn't want us here. We've all had that moment, those moments. That's important for us to frame the scripture we're going to turn to in just a minute in Luke chapter 7. Before we do that, though, let me set the stage. Let me kind of set the scene, if you will. Jesus is early in his ministry as notoriety and, and people are starting to hear about him and this teacher and this preacher and this miracle worker and they're, they're, they're hearing about stories. Maybe this is the Messiah. Could this be the one we've waited? Is this, you know, who is Jesus? And they're, they're trying to understand and, and they're, they're speculating and they're curious and they're interested. And so a lot of people are doing what we would do. They're wanting to kind of check Jesus out. They're wanting to see if they can kind of figure out who, who he really is. And that includes, as, we, as many of us know, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the pious, faithful, obedient, um, passionate, sometimes in the right way, sometimes in the wrong ways. In, in their faith, they're often painted as the villain, but that's too broad a brush. Jesus certainly had some problems with Pharisees, but they weren't, as a whole, villainous people. They loved the Lord, and they wanted to be faithful, and they wanted to live as faithful as they could. And sometimes that faithfulness made them too rigid, as we know. But so they want to know who Jesus is. So in Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee by the name of Simon decides to have a dinner party, and he wants to invite Jesus. Because this would be the best way to have conversation, to get to know Jesus, to find out who this guy really is. And so they have this party, and this dinner party sets the stage. Now... Here's what you need to understand. In the, the way a home would be structured in the time of Jesus, especially the, the home of a Pharisee, um, the, the dinner party, the eating and, and the meal, would be shared on the outer portion of the home, not outside, 
but on the room that would be just would be the first room that you'd walk into when you came into the home. It wouldn't be like in the, the middle of the home. If you were thinking about, if you were using this space as a as kind of a, a framework, you would, you would have a, the, the dinner party and the eating would be happening in a room like, like the Narthex lobby area, the first room you came into. And the guests and the Pharisees, they would, they would recline there and they would eat there. And, and it wasn't a party the way we think of a party. It wasn't just a social gathering. They're not listening to, you know, top 40 Jewish hits. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're not doing that. They're, they're eating, but there's conversation, there's debate, there's dialogue, they're talking theology, they're talking social issues. They're, they're, they're having a moment to, to kind of size each other up. And the, 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 those who either are the most knowledgeable or think they're the most knowledgeable are kind of dominating conversation. And they're flexing a little bit, maybe strutting, trying to show how much they know. And so all of these deep conversations are going on and they're learning about each other. And at the same time, the doors are opened. Now, why would the doors be open? That's so people in the community can come and can observe. So they can come and stand at the doors or stand inside the room. They're not guests at the party. They're not reclining and eating, but they get to come and basically, if you will, eavesdrop on the conversation. They think, why would anyone want to do that? Well, okay, remember the time and place. There's no Wi-Fi, no Netflix. Nobody's turning on the, the cable box. They're not, they're not listening to the radio. They're not doing any of those things. This was a way to, to learn. This was a way to kind of connect with what's going on and what people are saying and teaching. So, so crowds would come and they would listen. And, and so all of this is happening. And this is kind of the scene. And that's what you need to understand the scene because of what happens next in the midst of this dinner party. And that's where we pick up at Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. This is what we read. It says, when one of the, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he, being Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Just pause on that for a moment. Let that description sink in. Who, le- who led or lived a sinful life. Learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Should have been an uh uh-oh moment. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would, oh, just, I pray it be overwhelmed. Lord, overwhelm us by the power of this story. 
power, power of what it says about who you are and, and who we are. Speak to us your truth. I pray that in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, again, dinner party. Pharisees, religious leaders, important people, knowledgeable people, smart people, gathered and reclining and having the conversation and allowing people to come and to observe. But, but expecting the right kind of people will come and observe. The, the kind of people who, who, who know the rules, the kind of people who know you don't bring coffee into the sanctuary, those kind of people are the people who they expect. And this story at its heart is about a party crasher. I, I, that'd be my par- This is the parable of the party. It's not a parable. This is the, the story of the party crasher. Because into this, this woman comes. And, and here's what's so important about her, at least the first of many things that are important about her. As I said when I told you to pause on those words, Luke tells us she lived a sinful life. Now, let's just cut to the chase. That means she was a prostitute. That's, that's, what, that's what our biblical scholars largely believe is, is what that is referring to. She was a prostitute. The gospel writer didn't feel the need to go into any detail about what that meant. Everybody would have known it. We don't need to go into detail about that, what that means. We know it. She was a prostitute. And she comes into the party, into one of the very last places she would have not only been expected to be, but that she would have been welcomed. And the scripture tells us that she falls not before Jesus, behind him. She's behind Jesus. And I believe that's significant because even in this moment, she doesn't want Jesus to see her. She's not looking to be seen, but she, she gets down and, and she anoints his feet and she weeps and she washes his feet and she has this, this encounter with Jesus. And, and this encounter sets the stage at first for us to focus on this, this back and forth between Jesus and, and Simon. Because Simon, who's trying to understand who Jesus is, who's trying to, to, to feel him out, if you will, and figure him out, he sees this as a sign. He sees as a sign that there's no way Jesus could be who he claims to be. Because a prophet, a man of God, someone faithful, obedient, and passionate about the will, the law, and the faith of God would never let this woman touch him. Would never have let this woman come in and, and behave this way. And so he thinks it. And Jesus, sensing what he's thinking, says to him, Simon. Simon, who forgives, who, who loves more? The one who's had much forgiven or the one who's had little debt canceled? And of course, Simon says it's the one who's had much debt canceled, much has been forgiven. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. He's, he's saying, you, you don't understand the significance of what she's doing. And, and with that, I want to, I want to shift focus because I, I'll, I'll confess to you that my trap in this story, has often been to focus on the Pharisee or to focus exclusively on Jesus. And it would be odd, it's an odd thing to say that we shouldn't ex- um, focus exclusively on Jesus. But what I mean by that is that, that the woman becomes kind of the setup to the encounter, right? I treat her as the one who kind of puts the, 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 the events in motion, but she kind of becomes secondary in the narrative. 
And that's a mistake. Because I think we really have to spend some time with her. I think we have to really weigh uh, her story as it, as it plays into this story. Because what she does is remarkable. What she does is remarkable. Now, I have to say, to just be, to be fair and, and truthful, is that anything that we start to, to read into her story is just, just that. We're reading into it. It is, it is speculation based on, on just a few facts of this encounter with Jesus. But I, I, I say that still to say this to you, that, that I'm very confident that as we think about her, as we look at her through the lens of this experience with Jesus, that we can very faithfully say, that she did not want the life that she had. That, that this reality of her existence, this life of a sinful woman, was not what she dreamed about as a little girl. I mean, I know that sounds silly to say. Of course not. But, but her existence was based on her value of being a commodity. It was not lucrative. She wouldn't have made a lot of money in that day or any day. It was, she would have been ostracized. She would have been seen as less than. She would have been smirked about, talked about, ignored at best, mocked at worst. There was nothing that seemed to be valuable about the reality of, of her life. And it makes me wonder, what would have led her to that place? You know, what, what, would her, what was her story, her experiences? You know, we, we could all day begin to kind of speculate, and there would be nothing more than that. It would be speculating, whether it was broken relationships, broken family relationships, poverty, um, desperation. Who knows? But something had led her to this place where she was as broken as broken could be. And we know that because of the way that she responds to Jesus. As I was thinking about her story, my mind took me back to one of my favorite stories. And it's based on, and I've shared this in the past, um, my favorite musical, which is uh, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo. And if you know the story... The, the first half, or, or the, the novel by Victor Hugo, based on his novel. The first half of it, one of the, the principal characters is a woman by the name of Fontaine. Who, because of unfair circumstances, tragic circumstances in her life, finds her at a place of desperation. And her great desperation, her one heart's desire is to be able to provide for her daughter so her daughter doesn't starve to death. And that desperation leads her to the life of a sinful woman. And she, and we get this story in which we see her brokenness, and we see her pain, and we see her desperation, and we see what's driving her. And, and it's not a, a character of judgment, but a character of, of great sympathy. And into this narrative, and part of this story, there's the, one of the famous songs of the musical. It's called, I Dreamed a Dream. 
And I went back and I read those words again. And you may know it, you may not. But I want you to hear the words of this song, not just through the mouth of a character named Fontaine, but possibly through the voice of the woman who comes to anoint Jesus' feet. This is the words. There was a time when men were kind. Their voices soft, their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind. The world, a song, the song exciting. There was a time. Then it all went wrong. I dreamed a dream in times gone by. When hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. That I was young and unafraid, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. And then the last lines. I had a dream my life would be, so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And I read that and I thought about this woman. And I stopped and I just allowed for a moment me to think about her story. Then life had killed the dream I dreamed. But something changed. Something changed. If that was her lyric, there'd have to be another line. Because she does something that is brazen, that is daring, that is offensive to some. But it reveals that hope had sparked again. Because she walks by crowds of men that would have historically either used her as a commodity or mocked her for her choices. She walked by women that would have snickered about her and told stories and looked judgingly upon her. She walked into the home of Pharisees who would have wanted nothing to do with her. And she approached Jesus. And again, it says that she fell down and she wept at his feet. And she took an alabaster jar and she anointed his feet. And that is really important, folks, because an alabaster jar of perfume was incredibly expensive. It would have been well more than a year's wages. It probably was everything she had. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and she wept. And then she began to wipe his feet with her hair. And again, we've got to understand, this, this is big because a woman in Jewish culture didn't undo the hair. You know, uh, uh, ladies, you all wear your hairs in a lot of different ways and it's great and, and it's all okay. But in the Jewish culture, there was a way for a woman to wear her hair. And you didn't loosen your hair. You didn't, you know, wave it in the wind. You didn't do those things. And she begins to do all these things that you're not supposed to do. And she washes his feet. And Jesus says to Simon, the next verse, and I'm going to get to it in a minute. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? And that is the verse that I think becomes the catalyst. Because this scene is just, 
it is overpowering if we just sit with it for a little while. If, if we don't read too quickly and go on to the next story, if we just let the moment sink in, it absolutely just, it, it should give us chills. Because the question that Jesus asks speaks exactly what's happening here. This is exactly why Jesus is calling Simon out, because he knows and she knows that when he looks at her, what he sees is a sinful woman. What he sees is a woman who shouldn't be there. What he sees is a woman who doesn't know the proper protocol, shouldn't have been invited in the first place, is where she doesn't belong, doing what she shouldn't do. She's breaking every rule. She's violating every law. She's, she's disobedient in every way. He sees nothing but somebody who's unworthy. But what does Jesus see? What does Jesus see? He sees a woman who's invited and welcomed. He sees a woman who deserves and is worthy of grace and forgiveness and acceptance and love. He sees in her what probably no man had seen in her, if ever, at least for many, many years. And what motivates her? I believe what is the catalyst for this is she believes in her heart before she ever stepped in that room that there was something different about Jesus. Scriptures don't tell us what, don't tell us why, but there was something she believed about Jesus that was different than everybody else. Maybe she'd heard him. Maybe she'd seen him. Maybe she'd heard words like Matthew tells in Matthew chapter 11, and when Jesus gives an invitation, and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light, and I am gentle. I am kind and gentle in spirit. Maybe she heard words like that. And she dared believe it could be true. She dared believe it could be true. I want to pick up with the rest of the experience. I want to finish this morning with the, the rest of the story. In verse 44, this is what we read. Continuing after Jesus had said, Simon, you've judged correctly. He says, then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I came into your house. You did, got, did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and her great love has shown. But whoever has little... Forgiven loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And in a moment, you can just feel the weight lifted. In a moment, you can feel a lifetime of rejection and unwelcome and ostracism lifted. As this woman hears for the first time, you're worthy. You're welcome. You are invited. And you are forgiven. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the invitation that we receive. We are are invited. Come to me. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, those of you who have been carrying the weight of rejection. Come to me, those of you who have felt the brokenness of relationships. Come to me, whose life hasn't gone the way that you expected it to go. Come to me, who don't know that you're not supposed to walk into the church with a cup of coffee and have felt somebody turn you away for rules you didn't follow, for laws you didn't know. Come to me, those who the world says don't matter, because the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that those who the world rejects are the people that he welcomes. Those are the people he creates space for. At the foot of the cross, the field is level. And she hears it. And we need to hear it. We need to hear the invitation. Because this is our story. This is our story. Jesus invites us to come, to let go of the pretense and the show and the pomp and circumstance and come and just receive the forgiveness and grace that he offers. We all carry our burdens. I've said it a million times. I'll say it a million more. Some are visible, some aren't. This story isn't because to say, well, if someone's so bad as her can be forgiven, then so can we, because she is us. She's us. Stories are different, but the reality is the same. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. That's our invitation. And my, my closing challenge to you, and in fact, when I read this initially, the invitation was, I'm invited. That was the, the mantra that I read, I'm invited. But I don't, I don't want it to be, I'm invited. I want it to be, you're invited. And here's why. Because I want you to hear it, and I want you to speak it. I want you to hear it and I want you to speak it. If, if I hear I'm invited and I say I'm invited, I'm still pointing to me, right? But if you're invited and you speak you're invited, you've got to be saying it to somebody else. So here's the point. Come to Jesus and bring somebody with you. Bring them with you. Let them know that they matter too. You're invited. Come to me. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the, the first invitation that shapes our identity. And invites us into the places where others have said we're not welcome. You are welcome. Come to me. Hear the invitation and receive it with joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the invitation you give and the promise we receive through faith. Help us to hear it. Help us to speak it. Most importantly, help us to believe it and live it. This is our prayer. And we pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so...